Hello, Bookstube viewers. I'm here today with some good news. I have another returning author with, with me today. You're going to be speaking or watching. I'm going to be speaking with you. You're going to be watching Marsha Butler in a minute. But I just wanted to give you a statistic about Bookstube, which is I found really interesting. So this is the fifth episode of 2019. And out of the first five episodes, three of them have been with authors who were on the show previously. And interesting things have happened to two of them so far. Um, Lamar Giles has had another review in the New York, in the Sunday New York Times for his new book. And also Jane Healy, who wrote um, the Boston, the Beantown Girls, had her book on Seth Meyers' late night show, which was kind of a funny incident. And uh, now I'm going to reacquaint you with Marsha Butler. So hello, Marsha. Good morning, Eileen. I'm so glad you're back with us, but kind of in a different capacity than last time. So last time Marsha was with us, she was talking about her memoir, which was called The Skin Above My Knee. And I, it was a fascinating, fascinating book about, mostly about Marsha's career as a professional oboist. Um, and uh, the background, her background and kind of a difficult childhood, but her professional success. And she did mention during that show that she was, um, had also had a career as an interior designer. And so this is a woman of so many careers who seems to flow so smoothly between them. I don't, you know, most of us are happy with one and then we retire. So Marsha wrote a memoir, was an interior designer. Now she is also working on a documentary called The Creative Imperative, and she's written her first novel. So uh, even though she should be uh, pretty tired and exhausted, she looks pretty fresh to me. So Marsha, why don't you tell us a little bit about your new novel, Pickle's Progress? Well, it, it may seem like it's floating effortlessly on the outside, but believe me, there's a lot of you know work underneath and uh, through the years to go from career to career. But Pickle's Progress is a novel set in Manhattan. It spans over five weeks, and it focuses on four people. Two of the people are identical twins, Pickle and Stan McArdle. Pickle, obviously, is the protagonist. Stan McArdle's wife, Karen, and a bereaved woman named Junie, who they take into their lives, and her presence seems to um, just kind of mess them all up. And they, they use her as a pawn to kind of manipulate each other in this tight, this little tight family group that they have. And um, it spans over five weeks, and it is, it's kind of a wild ride. What you did not mention, the fifth character, who is a dog named, not Doodles, but The Doodles, which I found completely endearing because anyone who has a dog knows that the name of their dog should always be preceded by a the, because they are, in my case, it's the Ellie. And I, but I thought you caught that beautifully. And the dog provides, the dog really is, I guess the dog is a fifth character and New York is the sixth character, but um, the dog provides a point of interest and comfort and humor during some very, very stressful situations. Now, the, as far as the, boy, the twin men are concerned, I thought, first of all, it's fascinating because I think we're all kind of amazed by the idea of identical twins.
but the fact that you were able to make them identical through uh, their childhood into adulthood, where usually, you know, maybe one would get fatter, one would have gray hair, one would have three chins or whatever, but here they are, they're two handsome men, and they are still, they still look so much alike that they can be mistaken for each other, and if they wanted to do a Patty Duke thing, they probably could. So how did that, did, were you like fascinated with identical twins? How did, that, how did that pop into your head to make those characters? Well, I wasn't fascinated with identical twins, but I did have an experience with two, a woman back when I was in college. She's an identical twin, she's still a friend, and she's a very, uh, sort of an unusual looking person, her, as her twin is, they're identical, of course. And years ago, she said to me, she was getting, she got engaged, right? And so she was worried that her husband was attracted to her sister, which, <laughs> which of course is is makes sense. I mean, they look exactly alike. And so I said, well, why don't you ask him? And so she did ask me. She said, oh, are you attracted to my sister? And he said, no, no. And she was satisfied that he wasn't attracted to her identical twin sister. And I was suspicious. Now, mind you, they're still married happily, as is the twin. They're still very close. And they are also still exactly identical. And they're about my age, 60, 60 years old. And so it is rare that identical twins remain identical. You know, you, they are, they're almost like become siblings, just normal siblings later on in life. And so I was... I just, for some reason, I was thinking of that, and I started writing this novel about twins. And the other thing is, is that, of course, when you're dealing with people who are identical twins and someone who's attracted, yes, the initial attraction is physical. There's either a little sizzle or there's not, you know. And then, of course, as you get deeper into the person, the character either attracts you also or does not. So I was very interested in this idea of attraction. And of course, this plays heavily in my novel because the twins are two men and, you know, there's two women revolving around their lives. And, you know, I won't give out any spoilers, but there are, you know, there are some issues going on there about attraction to these two women, the, the wife and Junie, the woman who is bereaved and living in their house. I, I, um, I should have figured out that a situation that unusual wouldn't even spring into anybody's imagination that it that it would have come from real life. Now, has your friend who's the twin, the identical twin, has she read the book yet? I don't think so. Well, the book only came out a week ago. Oh, I forget because I've had it for like three. I've been, had it and been enjoying it for so long. So right, right. Yeah, she had it a week ago. She it came out a week ago, and I told her. Um, I guess several months ago that she was an inspiration for the book. I didn't actually go into details about that, you know, what I was thinking, because I didn't want to make her self-conscious. And she's a friend. She still lives in the New York City area, but I don't see her that often. So, um, you know, she was she's a musician, and I'm not a musician anymore, so I don't play jobs with her anymore, um, although I still consider her to be a dear person in my life. But, you know... Eventually, I'll tell her more specifically what the 
um, what the inspiration was specifically with her. But I did say it to her. I said, oh, you know, you were you were in my thoughts. Let's put it that <laughs> That's one way of putting it, as opposed to saying, yeah. if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have had a plot in the first place. <laughs> so um, speaking of the plot, um, were you, how did, how did it evolve? Because, you know, after a memoir, the next step is not necessarily a novel. So were you, were you enjoying writing so much that you, that, that you said, hmm, I want to, I want to keep going? Or, you know, was it the story that was kind of poking you in the side going, this needs to be written or both really? Well, mostly it was the writing. I really was immersed and found that I could write for hours a day. And um, as soon as my memoir was acquired by a publishing house, um, I kind of turned over in bed and started writing this book. I didn't want to stop. And also, after writing a memoir where there's a lot of navel gazing going on and, you know, you're involved with yourself and it's like, enough already, I'm done with that. I didn't want to think about myself or... You know, I wanted to get as far away as possible from myself, yet I still wanted to write. So I focused, I just I just had this thought about the identical twins and also, um, you know, I had a, I was inspired also, sadly, actually, by a couple who committed suicide off the George Washington Bridge a few years ago. It was in the Times. They were from Staten Island. They lived for a few hours. They were picked up and then they died. And I was interested in that idea of coming to that conclusion of killing yourselves together is really rare, actually. And because I think that impulse is so deep and dark that two people come to coming to it simultaneously is unusual. So that was an initial thought. And, you know, much of that idea fell off the page soon because they don't go off together. Her uh, Junie's boyfriend goes off the bridge and she's left and she's bereaved, although they had planned to go off the bridge. So um, to, to, to go on to your question a little bit, um, so it was a bit, little bit, I just wanted to write more. You know, I've, I just, that was it, I'm a writer. You know, I, all of a sudden I just said, okay, Marsha, you're a writer. So you wrote this book and you write this book. So I've been lucky. Well, I think the combination of the two plot ideas is blends perfectly because the I mean, and I, I'm not it's not a spoiler to say that the book basically starts with um, the suicide of Junie's boyfriend and Pickle is a police officer. So he's going to, you know, he gets involved. And the reason that Stan and Karen are involved is because they're driving over the bridge um, when the whole th when the whole thing happens, and I think, you know, it's very important to have a a, a beginning that will keep you reading, and it, it certainly did. Um, but I like the way you integrated the ideas. So you had two disparate thoughts, things that had been floating around in your head, and you found a way to really just merge them beautifully. So what I'm going to do now, um, viewers, is. I was telling uh, Marsha before before we started that I read so much and and a lot of times I'll read a book all the way through, I'll enjoy it, and there won't be a particular sentence or an anything or a section that stands out to me. But in Pickle's Progress, I found so many beautiful sentences 
that I just had to share them with you, these, you know, these sentences, and then I'm going to ask Marsha to do a brief reading without giving away too much of the plot, because I hate when you go to author readings and they give the whole plot away and then you don't even want to read the book. So, um, so here's my few sentences, and then, uh, Marsha, you'll pick it up from there. So um, this is talking about Pickle is a police officer, and um, Pickle is talking to Junie after her boyfriend has gone over the George Washington Bridge. And um, so here's the few sentences. Simultaneously, the feeling in the room shifted as rays of the early morning sun broke through the windows, high on the wall skirting the ceiling. Pickle knew this particular light as a perceived indication of progress by the unfortunate individuals who found themselves here. He had witnessed this phenomenon over the years. The emergence of sunlight, for some reason, prompted the assumed guilty to fold and throw their chips on the table. They were weary and ground down, not to mention hungry and possibly amped up from multiple cups of coffee. So after a very long night, it made sense that sunlight equaled hope and suspects could then reasonably deduce that a bunch of sunlit words might get them out of this room and into another, perhaps bigger and better room. So, you know, there you have um, the description of a room that's usually used for interrogation, but only a, an observer would see how light changes everything. And so an observation like that being made by Pickle, who doesn't initially appear to be the most sensitive person in the world, um, is, really helps you determine his character. It, it helps piece him together. Um, now, the next thing that happens is, so Pickle is talking to Junie, whose boyfriend jumped over the bridge. And uh, Junie says, I'm alive, he's not. And for the first time, this is Junie, she bawled from the very bottom of her lungs. It was a wretched sound, like some kind of cog mechanism with interlocking parts made in different centuries. The crunch and grind of her howl was unlike anything he'd ever heard before, and wrong, like an early death. Pickle clasped his hands together, fingers laced, placing them over his crotch in the prayer position. So that's another, just another sign of how you, how people react to death, especially a suicide that you were supposed to be a part of, and how Pickle hears things in Junie's voice. So Marsha, I lo just loved those two sentences. There's description in there, it's not overly adjectived, but there's definitely descriptions that evoke feelings. So I think these two were wonderful. Well, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Um, and I'm going to read a passage now in the book, uh, which um, is sort of mid, a little bit past midsection of the book. This is uh, Pickle has taken time off from his work as a police officer in order to devote himself fully to trying to uh, uh, woo Junie as a love interest. And this this beginning of this chapter, we find him at odds with what he's decided to do, and he is he's vulnerable right now. And so we start with this chapter. Saturday morning, Pickle stood at his window to the Western world, 
scanning traffic crossing the bridge as usual, and felt the burden of his un unstructured days. The hours stacked up one after another, and, being off the job, Pickle found it increasingly difficult to keep track. Monday, Saturday, what was the difference, really? He felt adrift without the ballast of his crew. He'd woken up early, thinking about victims who'd need a support call, only to remember that someone else had taken over his caseload. Then he'd spent the next few minutes lying in bed, regretting taking the time off at all. Pickle loved the force of the city and the sway of people, some days turbulent, others unbearably tedious. The unpredictability required him to wear different skins based on someone else's troubles. He was good at it, but he wasn't there. And as a result, he felt a deflation of his power. Perhaps emasculation was a more accurate term. On an impulse, Pickle got in his car and drove onto the Queensboro Bridge toward the land of affordable houses for cops, Douglaston and Lance. Lance is his partner, his cop partner. Halfway across the bridge, Pickle considered the confusing options of roads. They converged within a quarter mile of each other. The Brooklyn Queens Expressway, the Grand Central Parkway, and the Long Island Expressway. He cast aside those highways and instead took the country road for locals, Queens Boulevard. Queens had always seemed a confounding borough to Pickle. Vague borders of the small towns bled into one another. Sunnyside suddenly birthed Woodside, then Maspeth evaporated into Elmhurst. But landmarks, rather than town lines, helped to orient Pickle as he drove east. The white castle at 40th Street, where he'd once picked up, picked up food poisoning, was still in business. He slowed to a crawl as he drove past the Calvary Cemetery. Markers of death lined up stone dominion, dominant, like stone dominoes were a sobering reminder that a few of his friends, killed in the line of duty, had been buried there. Just at the end of the graveyard, Pickle made a right turn onto 58th Street and headed south toward the granite factory. He looked at his watch, 9.15. It would be sadistic to wait glance this early on his day off anyway. Pickle worked his way through the streets, sniffing out the correct turns. Life for Pickle's family had quickly bottomed out, very near to poverty. They'd moved from working-class Nassau County to lower-class Elmhurst, Queens, when the twins were about to enter high school. His mother was not an educated woman and held a string of low-wage jobs, finally landing something stable as an office helper for a granite fabrication company. She was lucky for the steady employment with decent people and occasionally gained some measure of pride from directing customers into the huge factory. And when she was given the responsibility to actually show the slabs, that was a very good day. Enormous riggers gripped the two-ton slices by means of rubber clamps and pulled them out for closer inspection. She then discussed the slabs with customers who thought she knew what she was talking about. But most days, she fielded phone calls from architects and designers who purchased the product on behalf of their clients. And every evening, she'd return home covered in fine silt, a byproduct of the immense granite cutters. That malevolent dust was, no doubt, the cause of her emphysema and subsequent death. In spite of their downward slide in economic status, 
High School in Elmhurst cemented hopeful life trajectory for both twins. Stan, not surprisingly, received full scholarships, first to college and then architecture school. Pickle completed a year of community college before joining the police force. Yet despite their divergent paths, the twins understood that they were forever bound together in life. By Pickle's measure, their struggles had evened out. Stan battled with his obsession demons and Pickle endured his devil of a mother. He drove up onto the sidewalk in front of the stone yard. Hundreds of remnants stood stacked against the side of the building. He got out of the car, walked among the hunks of Mother Earth, brushed his fingers over the edges and felt the dust that had killed his mother. Pickle noticed his hands becoming moist and the silver silt clouded into a thin slurry. Rubbing them together, Pickle ground the grit further into the creases on his palms. This was the exact texture on his mother's hands when he'd return home every evening. I think um, from that you can gather enough about Pickle's background and there's even more um, drama with his mother that's kind of uh, miserable. But again, I think you capture here the reality of something that we would just probably drive by and never think twice about. It's, it's a granite company that sells, you know, countertops and stuff. But to Pickle, it's more. And to the reader, it becomes more because it, it, it informs you, it gives you the backstory of Pickle and Stan's lives um, when, in their childhoods. But it does it in a way that just, so you, you marry description and fact and provide backstory in, in a most beautiful way. So I, I did love that passage. And now we've got one more. And we've got one more. Thank you for that. Yeah, I tried to keep, I tried to actually have the, the, the grit and the silt of the hand, of what he's feeling on the granite slices to actually be kind of a representation of his mother, that he's actually got his mother dug into his hands now. So this next passage is short, and um, this is when Pickle and Junie have proposed to go out on a date to go to a Broadway show, and Pickle's feeling quite vulnerable. He doesn't let his guard down often, but with this woman, he feels he can. And he discloses something to her. They decide not to go to the Broadway show because he's headachy and he doesn't feel well. And they just kind of sit on her sofa. And he, this is a passage where he, he talks about his experience of being a police officer. And Pickle is speaking here. Junie. I'm glad you didn't go over that night. Pickle, embarrassed, rubbed his eyes. She nodded once. He started to say more, then thought better of it. He wasn't sure if she should or even could hear the things that were on his mind. He pulled his arm over his eyes to dissipate the moment. What? Junie asked. He aimed his voice toward the ceiling. It was easier that way. I've seen a lot as a cop. You can't imagine. Human cruelty is just too much. And what a bullet can do to a body is indescribable. Even when you see it again and again, 
it's new and fresh and awful each time. But for me, the most painful deaths are the suicide. It's one thing to come upon a murder, gruesome as it is, but that's a death inflicted on another, so the victim retains a certain dignity. I see it as the soul staying intact, for lack of a better way to put it, but a suicide? Well, that person did it to himself. It's the most violent expression of self-hatred imaginable. And that soul was destroyed a long, long time before the actual act. Pickle turned to her. To her. They know that about me at the precinct, that I'm good with the suicides. I always catch those cases. Her body was now close to his. She leaned in to listen as he spoke because his voice had diminished in volume. He realized he was treading on private ground, but he had nothing to be sorry for and nothing to lose. Most people don't see death very often, but you have. You're an expert, she said. He could smell her breath, mint. No, I'm no expert, not nearly. It's just that I've understood that witnessing people at their saddest is a privilege. It's the only way I can do my job. Ooh. I, I try to imagine police officers reading the book and seeing themselves in pickle. Does that do the, your very admirable and accurate portrayal of pickle as a police officer? I mean, he's not only a sensitive police officer, he's kind of, um, he can be kind of brutal and nasty and, um, and not a friend to all. Does that, like, how did you develop that part of his character? Well, <clears throat> Pickle is outwardly, he can be a reckless, he is a reckless man. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he just, he just pulls off and you know, behaves. And in social ways, most people behave in a, in a filtered way. We may have all manner of thoughts going on in our head that we want to just spew out the most horrible venom to anybody in front of us at any given time. This is just the nature of being human. But Pickle doesn't have the ability to have that filter. And that has to do with his upbringing, which we find out in the book. To it. So he's shaped by his mother's behavior toward him. And it's interesting that he's a police officer because the facade of a police officer, the typical facade that we see, is somebody who's hard-boiled, you know, who has to see a lot of death, danger, tragedy. Most people who are in the midst of a police officer, something bad has happened. They've either behaved badly or they're victims. And so a police officer has to have that shroud over them to protect themselves and to present neutrally to whoever they're, they're being, you know, they're in front of. But as a character in the novel, he can't be just that. So I really worked hard to bring him down to his knees when he was in front of the very, the specific person who he could do that with. And he seems to idealize Junie as this sort of Fragonard beauty who can do no wrong. And it's the idealization of this woman who is going to be the one for him. 
And in reality, she's not. She won't be, you know, probably. We don't know. No spoilers. But, <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, we don't really know throughout the novel whether it's going to work out with Junie, although he dearly would like it to be. But he does take the opportunity to expose himself in a vulnerable way to her. And I felt, you know, I had to give him balance for the way he is, the recklessness, the unfiltered um, behavior that goes on and on through the no throughout the novel. It's just unbelievable the things he does. And he's unapologetic about it. But then when he's with Junie, he can let it down. And, and that's what I thought, that's what I was trying to do is to give him bandwidth. Well, I'm going to have to be apologetic now because amazingly enough, our time is up. But um, I, I just have to say again how much I enjoyed both of your books and how much I ad admire you for being able to, like you say, spill your guts and look internally, but also create a fascinating world of people who aren't you. And so I want to thank you again, Marsha, for joining me. I'll look forward to um, finding out more about your documentary that you're working on, which is called The Creative Imperative. And um, I will for sure see you again in the future. I hope you'll uh, be a regular on Bookstew as your creative imperatives keep going. Thank you, Eileen. It was such a pleasure. And thank you. And so, viewers, um, we close another episode where I wish, you know, I had another two hours or at least another half hour to speak with a great author. Thank you for joining us today, and please be sure to pick up your copy of Pickle's Progress by Marsha Butler. Have a good night. Mm -hmm.